Thank you so much for being here this morning. So excited. Yes, I'm so excited to, to fast next week. I, I love to eat, but I think fasting is good. And I think we're fasting during a great time. Uh, this upcoming week is going to be a distracting week, uh, probably one of the most distracting ones on the calendar with an election uh, on the horizon. And so we want to set our hearts and our attention on God and seek him together as a family. And so fasting helps us do that. So I want to replug that before you leave, pick up a fasting and prayer guide. We have devotionals and guided prayers that will help structure your fast. So I'm really excited for that. So Let's jump into the Word. Uh, This morning we continue our new sermon series through the book of Ephesians entitled God, the Church, and Everything in Between. And so I want to recap a few reasons why we're studying Ephesians. Uh, This book is short, but it covers a wide range of theological topics. Uh, What is so extraordinary about this book is that the contents are so simple And so foundational that a new follower of Jesus can read it and study this and and walk away with a deeper understanding of God. And yet, the contents of this book are so profound and so deep that the most mature Christians never seem to master the depths of this book. It's weighty. It's deep. This letter summarizes what it means to be a Christian better than any other book in the Bible. Uh, And and one of the reasons why is because in one sitting, this six-chapter book clarifies the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, It unpacks the dynamics of a personal relationship with God. Uh, This book reveals the overall plan that God has for the church. This book reveals what it actually means to live as a Christian This book uh, shows us what are the implications of being loved by God. And one of the things I love about this book is that it makes it very clear that you are not a Christian because you show up to church. Uh, It makes it very clear that you are not a Christian because your mom and dad are Christians. Uh, You're not a Christian because uh, all your friends are Christians and, and you serve in three different departments at church and you've done the religious things growing up. In fact, 36 different times in this one book does it summarize what it means to be a Christian. And it's this phrase, in Christ. To be a Christian is is to be in Christ and Christ in you. And to have a dynamic personal relationship with God. And so this book deepens our understanding of the gospel. And as our understanding of the gospel deepens, so does our worship of God. And so that's my prayer for us as a church, uh, that as we dive into these words, that our hearts would explode with praise and worship, that our hearts would explode with, with gratitude and love for God as we see who he is and what he has done. So this morning we are looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, and I'm so excited uh, about this portion of scripture. I'm, I'm Red Bull on top of a Starbucks Americano, excited. Uh, this is an awesome piece of scripture, I hope you, you'll see what I mean. Uh, so in this portion of scripture, it is a blessing of praise. Uh, Paul, the author of this text, is praising God for who he is and what he has done. But here's what's so incredible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is actually one long sentence. 202 words. Now, one of my downfalls is I love 
writing really long sentences. I love using commas inappropriately and just running it on forever. Uh, Jessica and some of the staff are looking at me like, yes, that is my problem. In in fact, uh, Alyssa had to do some extra hours editing this fasting guide because I just kept on going. So we don't need we don't need a period. I'm in the zone right now. And so that's what's happening right now in this, in this praise. Paul is so consumed with the glory of God, so consumed with the beauty of God that he's just writing and he, he does not stop. And so this is one long sentence, 200 words. And, and I know some of y'all are noticing that, that in your English Bible, there's periods and there's, and there's commas and paragraphs. Uh, they're being nice to you. Uh, in the Greek, it's one long paragraph, one long sentence. So we're going to read this entire portion of scripture together. And, and as we do that, I want to point out one of the things that Paul's doing in this text that makes it so amazing. So will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? It says this, Ephesians chapter one, verses three through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee and inherent of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The amazing and beautiful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So lots of scripture, about 200 words, one long sentence in the original Greek. And one of the amazing things that Paul is doing in this portion of Scripture is that he, he structures it in a, in a very strategic way. What we see happening here is Trinitarian praise. Uh, to be a Christian is to believe in the Trinity. We believe that in perfect unity and equality, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to remember this, and I want to point it out, uh, that this Trinitarian community, this Trinity, is the standard for how we ought to live in community with one another. And, and what we will see Paul do is that he'll constantly allude to the Trinity. So, so Paul is praising and blessing all three persons of the Trinity. And each member of the Trinity has an implication for our, our salvation, So verses 3 through 6 is about the Father, verses 7 through 10 is about the Son, and in verses 11 through 14 we see what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. So today we are going to unpack, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6 and talk about the Father, 
uh, and, and his role in our life in salvation. And then in the next couple of weeks, we'll tackle the rest of the verses and talk about the Son and the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I want to unpack three key themes, three subjects that Paul mentions in this letter. And then I want to talk about some practical implications that arise from these subjects. The first one is spiritual blessings. The second is election. And the third is adoption. Spiritual blessing, election, and adoption. So let's talk about spiritual blessings. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Now, the, the term spiritual here helps clarify the, the nature of this blessing. Uh, this entire section uh, unpacks some of these spiritual blessings. Forgiveness of sins. Redemption in Christ. A dynamic personal relationship with Jesus. The Spirit bringing power into our lives and enabling us to walk as believers. And so where are these blessings located? Uh, they're located in, in the heavenly places, or another word for that is in the spiritual realm. And, and I love what Paul is doing here because he strategically uses a term to draw our attention off the earthly things. Because if we're honest with ourselves, when we think of blessings, where do our mind go? We think about the material world. We think about uh, money. We think about God bless me with money so I can do all the things that I want to do and buy all the stuff that I think I need. We think about something physical. And although God is a giver of good gifts and he does bless us with material and physical things, Paul uses the word spiritual to take our focus off the material and redirect our minds to the highest blessing we can receive from God. And these are spiritual blessings. The greatest blessing that we can have is a life in Christ. Now, I don't know what every spiritual blessing is. Uh, but, but the fact is that God blesses all Christians. And Paul, Paul is encouraging these old Christians and these new Christians and reminding them that you are blessed in Christ. Now, when we consider the background and the lifestyle that the people in Ephesus undertook, it helps bring life to how rich these verses actually are. So let's unpack this background. In Ephesus, there was a rampant practice of magic and idol worship. Uh, there's actually a very intense story about this in the book of Acts where we see on display the power of darkness and the power of Jesus, and how the power of darkness is no match for the name of Jesus. I, I love this story. So it says this in Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 11 through 19. So this story that I'm about to read takes place in Ephesus, where Paul is, uh, where this letter is directed to. This is what it says. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he touched that his skin touched, were, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, to, to, to come out. 
And so it says in verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This is scary stuff right here. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and Jesus was extolled. We continue reading. It says, and many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. So there was a group of people who partook in this lifestyle who partook in, in, in magic practice and idol worship. And, and a group of these people came to know Jesus. And it says that they gave up that lifestyle and they brought their magic arts and their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. Now, that's radical transformation. That's, that's radical acceptance of Jesus, of turning away from everything and saying, all these things that I used to once find value in, I just give it up. It's worthless, it's trash, it can be burned. And it says this, they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver or about $5 million in today's currency. And the word of the Lord continued to increase mightily. It's incredible. So a brief background. These sons were were known as syncretists. Uh, What that means is that they combined different Jewish practices and pagan rituals to cast out demons in Jesus' name. So uh, this is what D.A. Carson says about this portion of scripture. He says, while acknowledging the authority of Jesus and his agent Paul, the demon recognizes that these are not Jesus's authentic representatives. And so they have no real power. Spiritual power does not reside in magical objects or spells, but in Jesus himself. Being in Christ and Christ in us. He is not a spiritual power we can manipulate, but he's the sovereign Lord whom we should worship and serve. You see, you can know the name of Jesus and you can be around people who do Jesus stuff, but unless you're in Christ, you do not share in his power and you do not share in his life. And so there's this deep practice of of spirituality, dark spirituality in the background, but it wasn't random. It was aimed at something. It was aimed at getting something out of life, getting the blessed life, getting the highest quality of life. And what we'll see is that it's not found in money because these new believers burned $5 million worth of scrolls. But every blessing, everything we desperately long for and try to find in other things has been made available in Christ. The deliverance that we seek is in Jesus The protection that we need is in Christ. The provision that we long for, the love, the worth, and acceptance has been made available in Christ. We don't need to give ourselves to an idol or give ourselves to a practice that we think will in turn bless us with those things. We have them in Jesus. They've been made available to us in Christ. Now, these new believers uh, were gaining eternal riches in Christ by giving up their old ways and pursuits. But there was a group of Ephesians that were were losing wealth by holding on to their lifestyle. And as a result, a riot breaks out. There's economic hazard. So we keep reading in the story. Um, 
And there's a man who, whose business is being threatened by Paul's ministry. Because Paul is saying, you don't need to give your life to an idol, give your life to Christ. And so this man uh, would make uh, silver idols uh, of, of, the, uh, of the Greek goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. And so this is another character that's in the background of Ephesus that's really important to understand. So in Greek mythology, uh, Artemis was the daughter of Zeus. She was also known as Diana. Uh, she was the goddess of the hunt. She was associated with, with the wilderness and with chastity. Uh, she was thought to watch over uh, the people of Ephesus and, and give fertility to humankind. And so the influence of this goddess and the cult attached to her permeated every single part of life in this city. Uh, the temple was the major banking center of the area. Uh, people relied on tourism to her temple for, for, for a livelihood. Uh, and in fact, there would be Olympic-style games that would be held in her honor, and she was the trusted guardian and protector of the city. And so here's what New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold points out. He says, For those who gave their allegiance to Artemis, she was a benevolent deity, or thought to be. Uh, she was incredibly powerful. She would sympathetically use her power on behalf of her devotees. She was the acclaimed queen of heaven, uh, the Lord and Savior. She wielded power and authority over heaven, earth, and even the underworld. Uh, this was especially evident over the various kinds of spirits that people feel, fear, feared. She could break the chains of fate, protect people from various kinds of tormenting spirits, and defend people against spirits coming to bring injury, sickness, and harm. And what Paul is doing here, he's, he's speaking contextually to this people. He's reminding them that the Father is the true protector, and blessings come from God. And, and that they have, and that in a personal relationship with God, we have access to everything and more that you think this idol will give you. And so Paul is affirming this early church and, and reminding us that we worship God, that we're in Christ, and the God we serve is infinitely more powerful than these hostile beings and false supernatural powers that claim to give us life. Paul is putting on display how powerful and how wonderful, how awesome and how amazing our God is. And that our, our allegiance to him is actually life-giving. And that we should be deeply rooted in a relationship with Christ. You see, through faith in Christ, we are joined to him. And we participate in his life, his death, his resurrection. And we receive new life. Now, let's look at verses 4 through 6 and unpack this second subject that Paul brings up. And this is what is known as the doctrine of election. Now, uh, I'm not talking about the political election. Um, although, ironically, this doctrine of God choosing people has created and caused just as much, in fact, even more hostility and division among certain groups of Christians. Uh, this doctrine has been epically misunderstood, and, and Christians, like myself included, have, have clinged to the philosophical parts of this doctrine instead of the beauty and the love and the grace that, that this truth is actually all about. So in fact, this truth about God is actually supposed to stir our hearts to worship the way it overtook Paul and caused him to write a 200-word sentence. 
Uh, and that's what I want to focus on. I want to zone in on, uh, on the issues that people have with election. Um, I, I don't want to zone in on, on, on the issues that people have with election and predestination. That, that's what the Internet's for. Uh, I want to zoom in on the beauty and the love of God on display in him sovereignly choosing people, in him taking the initiative to choose us. And I believe that will help us reconcile some of the concerns we may have. So let's read verses four through five. It says this. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. So before God created the world, uh, before uh, God laid the foundations, God lovingly chose a people for himself, and he devised a way of freeing his creation from the enslavement to sin they would experience. And so what's so beautiful about this is that God calls us. God takes the initiative. You see, you are not a child of God because you decided to become one. You are a child of God because God called you and he made you one. God knew this and planned this, and one day God will bring all of his rebellious creation under the full reign of Christ. God chose his people in eternity past. In other words, God chose us because of Christ and through Christ. You see, election and and predestination, they, they do not negate the need for faith and repentance. Rather, it establishes the need and possibility of both. You see, God does not relate to us as as sticks and stones, but he relates to us as free creatures created in his own image. So then if salvation is is based on election and God choosing people, then, then why preach the gospel, some people say? Well, the reason why is because God has chosen preaching as the means to awaken faith. We should proclaim the gospel to everyone without exception, knowing that it is the Holy Spirit who can convict, regenerate, and justify the believer. It is only the Holy Spirit that draws us near to the Father. And God uses us. We partner with God to preach his word, and his word awakens faith in a person's life. Now, this is extremely scandalous, uh, because we live in such a transactional society. Uh, We're so used to uh, working hard so uh, we can earn something. Uh, We're so used to working hard to show others a a temporary best version of ourselves so we can receive love. We're so used to working to be loved. Work to prove your worth. Work to prove that you have intrinsic value. But here is uh, the reality. The, The hard truth, the beautiful truth, is that you cannot work your way to earn God's favor, to earn God's approval, to earn uh, God's love and acceptance. It is freely given because of Jesus. And, and the reason why is because we're dead. We are so broken and inclined to sin 
that apart from God calling us and making us alive, we remain dead in our sin. And our gravitational pull is naturally towards sin and away from God, towards partaking and feasting on sin and rebelling against God. But when God wakes us up, when God illuminates and and, and shines light into the darkness of our life and reveals to us who we are and who he has called us to be, when he draws us in, we come alive. When God chooses us, when he calls us, we are able to respond to God. And this is a gift from God through the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit enables us to believe in the God who is calling us to be in relationship with him. The Holy Spirit gives us faith. So if you are a follower of Jesus, it is a gift God has given you. If you are alive in Christ, it is because he made you alive. And this idea is so powerful because there are two spiritual realities that we live in. You're either living in one or you're living in the other. You're either dead in sin, living apart from God, and making sin come alive in all areas of your life, or you're alive in Christ, walking with God, and putting sin to death. There is, there is no in-between. You're either in Christ, or you're not. And the author of the scripture makes it very clear that, that we cannot make ourselves come alive. We're dead. We need God to come resurrect us, to awaken faith in us so that we can be in a relationship with him. Because apart from God working in our life, all we know how to do is feast on sin. All we know how to do is rebel against God. But the beauty of the gospel is that when God invites us to be in relationship with him, he awakens us, he regenerates us, he makes us new. And a part of being a new creation is that now we have new desires. And this new desires give way to a new life. And this is the life that God calls us to live in. And it's in this new life that we experience every spiritual blessing. And these spiritual blessings uh, give us the highest quality of life that we look for in other things. But as long as we continue to partake in feast of sin, we're actually contributing to our death and destruction internally and perpetuating it out there. And so God in his great love takes the initiative to cause us. And this should move our hearts to worship. Why? Because he chose you before you did anything. Before you did anything good. Before you did anything terrible. This scripture says, before the foundations of the world, before creation came into existence as we know it, God took into consideration your best moments and your worst moments, and he said, you're mine. And he took the resume and the autobiography of your life, and he set it aside, and he said, I want you in my family. And he said so because he is God. And this brings so much freedom because there is no longer this burden to prove that we are worthy of God's love. This brings so much freedom because it says in love, he predestined you. In lo- it brought God joy and delight to consider your life, the best parts and the worst parts, and say, I want you in my family. 
In love, he did this. So the question I have for you is, do you feel loved by God? Do you know that you are loved by God? If the answer is no, and and you are walking with Jesus, this should bring you freedom and rest, because the answer is yes. Yes, he loves you. And you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to fix. You have nothing to improve. You don't have to get anything right before he deems you worthy. You are loved by God because he chose you before the foundation of the world, before you were even born. In love, God has predestined us. He chose us. And anytime we are walking with Jesus and we claim that, we are not loved by God. It's actually a backwards attack on God because what we're saying is, God, you made a wrong choice here. And God makes no wrong choices. He chose you. He's forming you. He's growing you. And now we're conforming our lives to believe that God is who he says he is. He is not a liar. And when he says he loves you and he chose you, you are his. So what is the goal of this election? What is is this all about? The answer is found in in verse 5. It says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. He chooses us. He rescues us from our sin. He redeems us and he brings us into his family. This is what election is all about, becoming sons and daughters of God. And adoption is this incredible metaphor that describes our relationship with God. You see, God does not only choose us, chooses us to be in Christ, but at the same time, he brings us into relationship with himself. You see, God is not distant and far off. He's here, he's present, and desires to be involved in every single part of our life. So we can call him father because he has brought us into his family as sons and daughters. And this was such a a scandalous thing to refer to God as father. In fact, some of the Jewish groups in the city had a a problem with this because uh, it seemed like it lacked reverence. How is God your father? Does that make you little gods? But what Paul is putting on display here and what God is revealing to us is that that's how he relates to us relationally. That we are one united family in Christ. And, and he is our father and he is personal. And that's the type of intimacy and relationship we can have with him. And he does this in love. Now, now the word for adoption here is a Greek word that is referencing the Greek and Roman law. Uh, in fact, there were no laws or teachings about adoption uh, in the Old Testament. So Paul's audience, when they saw this word, when when they read this word, their minds automatically went to the Roman-Greek understanding of adoption uh, and and, and how it was structured at that time. So under Roman law, and very similar to today, uh, an adopted child acquired all legal rights of a natural-born child. So an adopted child and a natural-born child, there is no difference. That is your child. This son is not your adopted son, and this is not your biological son. It's your son. Acquired all the legal rights. And then 
Um, the child that was uh, being received into the adopting family received the family name, shared in the family status, and shared in the family inheritance. So when God adopts us, we take on his name. We take on his status, holy and righteous and blameless and fully loved. That's why we can have this confidence that God loves us despite our worst days or our best days because we share not in our own identity, but in the identity of Christ who is perfectly loved, who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly blameless and complete and peaceful and secure. That is my status, That is my position before God. And so when the enemy wants to accuse you and say that uh, you're, you're dirty and that you're messed up and that you're sinful and that you're getting everything wrong, you can say, that is my old identity. My new identity is holy, blameless, and perfectly loved by God the Father. So that's why Paul says there is no condemnation, no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ partakes in no shame and no condemnation and we legally share in that status. That is our identity. That is the life that we've been given. What a spiritual blessing we have. We are brought into the family of God. We share in his inheritance. We get to rule and reign and enjoy heaven on earth with God forever. And we are brought into this family because of the spilled blood of Jesus. And so now that we're in union with Christ, this is very important to understand. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you now. When you Proclaim faith in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been made alive with Christ, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. So when you feel like there's no power within yourself to overcome sin, there isn't. But you share in his power and his power conquered sin and death on the cross. So I connect to his power and relinquish my own will. His security is my security. When I feel uh, insecure and unworthy, I cast those lies down to the pit of hell where they belong, and I claim that my security is found in Christ and Christ alone, and he alone is the standard for my worth and validation. His peace is my peace. When I'm robbed of peace here on earth, when there's turmoil surrounding me and there's nothing within me to stabilize me, I call on the name of Jesus and God is a good father who gives good gifts and he brings peace. His love is my love. His worth is my worth. His provision is my provision. His suffering is my suffering. And so when I go through life and and, and things aren't going the way I want them to and I'm experiencing uh, persecution and hardship and all my expectations of being a Christian are shattered and I'm suffering, I can remain confident that I'm on the right path because just as Jesus suffered, he promised that I will suffer. And so now my suffering does not become an external marker of my godliness. It actually validates it. That if I'm suffering, I'm in Christ. 
and we're suffering for a good cause. His victory is my victory. His death is my death. And most importantly, his new life is my life. This is the spiritual blessing. This is the power. This is what moved Paul to nonstop 200 words of worship. This is what we have in Christ. My past, my present, my future is blessed because God chose us. He chose you in Christ, and now you have access to Christ, access to all these spiritual blessings and a dynamic relationship with him. So I want to close with this reflection question. What is the Holy Spirit calling you to believe this morning? Do you believe that you are loved by God? Or do you feel like you live a lifestyle that is unworthy of his love? During your worst moments, do you picture a God that's disappointed in you or a God that's welcoming you with open arms, inviting you to grow and be in relationship with him? Second question, are you part of his family? Do you know that you're in his family? Are you in the family of God? I, I, I had a friend who, who uh, always says, Jesus loves you. And, and we would just go to H-E-B and just say, Jesus loves you. The, the most random people. And then we added on this extra one. Are you in his family? Because God uh, has revealed his great love to you, but unless that you know that you're in his family and he's made available this provision for you to be in his family, you won't experience all that God has for you. Are you living in the family of God? Are you living a life that is seeking to put sin to death so that you can come alive in Christ? Or are you continuing to feast and partake on the sinfulness that this world has to offer with no intentions of turning to God? Now, I'm not talking about perfect obedience and perfect submission. What we're talking about here is Christ in us, working out our salvation with him and growing into all that he's called us to be. And it's far from sinless perfectionism. We reject that. But it's a life of progress and partnering with God. Are you in Christ? You're not a Christian because you show up to church. You're not a Christian because your parents read you the Bible, uh, or because you know Christians, or because you, you live a good life. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus is to be in Christ and Christ in you and to walk out that dynamic relationship with him where he becomes the center of everything you do and he begins to order your life and you submit it to the lordship of him. So to be in Christ means you're no longer in yourself, but you're living in this new spiritual reality, this new spiritual realm where God is king and rule and sovereign over all of your life and you submit to following him? Or are you living in your own kingdom where you just show up to church and say, I'm I'm just here casually, but I have no intentions of submitting my life to him and letting him be the Lord and ruler of my life. Do you believe you're loved by God? Are you part of his family? Are you in Christ? With every eye closed and head bowed, I want to take a moment to reflect on these three questions. If the answer is yes, 
you know you're loved by God and you're part of his family and you're in Christ, I want, I, want you to, I want to invite you to just take a moment in your own words, in your mind, out loud to praise him, to give him thanks, to, to rejoice and, and, and recall how good and faithful God has been. But if you're here today and you're feeling like, I, I don't really believe I'm loved by God. I don't think I'm, I'm part of his family and I, I'm not even sure I'm in Christ. What the Holy Spirit is doing right now uh, is using this moment of reflection to, to awaken your heart to faith. And, and to do what Colossians 1.13 says, transfer you from one kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And I believe that God wants to do that in your life right now, to, to transfer you, to change you, to transform you, to bring you into his family and give you this confidence and assurance that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. So, if you feel like you need to respond to that, I want to invite you to just shoot your hand up real quick so I can pray with you. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you in Jesus' name. So overwhelmed by your love that before the foundation of the world, before uh, creation was laid forth, in your mind, in your heart, you chose us. You foresaw every single moment of our lives and said, that one is mine, I love you. And so Lord, we rejoice in this truth that our worth and our love is independent of our accomplishment and actions, but it's solely based on you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that this week that you would move our hearts and stir our hearts to to believe this more and more. I pray that you would empower us to dwell on these truths, that we are incredibly loved by you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remind us that we're in the family of God and that we would take uh, every moment of our life into consideration. Am I living like I'm a member of God's family in this part of my life? Or am I living like I'm a member of the enemy's family? Holy Spirit, I pray that that you would make that moment so clear in our lives. Let us not draw away from that. And Holy Spirit, I ask that that you would continue to confirm and affirm our union in Christ. And that we would live lives submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Reminded that we are a part of his kingdom and not the kingdom of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God.